kind of like that. You know, I practice in big management side firms. I practice in small firms. I've started my own business. My whole life has kind of been, you know, I don't set a goal for where I'm going to be in five years. I want to see how much adventure I can have in the next five years. I just set and discuss dates for when I'm going to Antarctica, hopefully next February. And that's kind of what my life has been. I have this passion of trying to make workplaces and the world better, but I need to have adventure too and fun. And so I try to seize on those opportunities as they come. Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. Thanks for joining me again this week for episode number 48 of the Impact Makers Podcast. Each week, my goal is to inspire you to identify ways that you can make a difference at work and in life through providing education on a topic to increase your influence, clarify your message, or lead with greater impact, or to bring you conversations with interesting guests who are doing just that. Today, I'm chatting with someone who not only inspires me, but who often pushes me to think bigger and to think differently and to take action. My friend Kate Bischoff is a mom, a former U.S. Foreign Service worker, an employment lawyer, a social justice warrior, and an avid adventurer. Whether she's working with clients, doing a free webinar on the latest rules and regulations affecting the workplace, or providing manager training, she brings an educated, experienced, and often witty perspective towards bringing her goal of making both the workplace and the world better for all. You'll be able to tell right away that Kate makes me laugh with her positive outlook, her thirst for adventure, and I hope you'll be inspired to think about your own life and how you can find meaningful ways to do work that you love while living life on your own terms. Well, good morning, Kate Bischoff. It's so great to see your smiley, sunny face today. How are you doing? All things considered, I'm doing pretty well. I'm hanging in there. I'm surviving. Sometimes I say it's, it's partly cloudy. You know, but so I, I like how I intro you with how bright and sunny you are, and you say I'm I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I like how I say good morning. So whether you're listening to this at night or whenever, it's morning in this world today. So mm-hmm. it is an interesting time, and you're an interesting person. And I've got you here today, and I want to <laughs> kind of talk about you and, and what you're doing in the world. So tell mm. me about Kate Bishop. Well, I think the most salient fact about me is that I suffer from law degree. And I, I say that because people are like, oh, well, you know, she's the scary lawyer. And I, and I don't think I'm scary. I might be intimidating or at least very assertive uh, in my presentation, but I don't think I'm necessarily scary. At least the people who know me don't think I'm scary. But prior to to being where I am now. I did practice law. I was in the courtroom quite a bit. And my other big piece was I joined the Foreign Service and was the head of human resources for the Consulate General in Jerusalem and the U.S. Embassy in Zambia before returning back to Minnesota and starting my own business four years ago. Wow. So So one of the things I like about this Impact Makers podcast and the people that I get to talk to is always kind of figuring out how they ended up on the path that they're on. So you said a couple of things there. You know, first of all, when you decided to get a law degree, was it that you had visions of 
being in a courtroom and wearing the suit? You know, what's what sent you down that path? Well, when I was in high school and in college, I wanted to be the first female elected senator for the U.S. in Minnesota. Oh. And currently right now, we have two female senators for Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So I, that, you know, that ship sailed. I couldn't have that role. And I went to law school thinking that I was going to be representing students and teachers against school districts for their First Amendment rights because one of the most impactful U.S. Supreme Court decisions for me was Mary Beth Tinker versus the Des Moines School District. And in that case, Mary Beth was, I think she was a junior high student, and she wanted to protest the Vietnam War by wearing a black armband, and her principal hated that idea. And so the case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the court held that we have First Amendment rights even when we're in schools, and provided that we're not creating an unreasonable disturbance, we have those First Amendment rights. And so I wanted to champion the cause of every Mary Beth Tinker out there. So. And how old were you when this, this vision came to you? <laughs> I think I learned about, yeah, I think I learned about Mary Beth Tinker probably when I was the same age she was in junior high school. I, my social studies teachers were both frustrated and inspired by me, I think, because I kept poking them and saying, tell me more about this. I want to know more about this. So yeah, I probably learned about it then. But now when I got to law school and then I looked at, oh, I have loans and you know, I like to feed myself. <laughs> I need to make money. And so I, I thought, well, I'll go work, see if I can get a clerkship with this plaintiff's law firm. And during the interview for that position, it was a plaintiff's employment law firm. I asked them in 2002, you still make money on sexual harassment? I mean, that still happens. And they laughed at me, but they did, <laughs> they did hire me. And now I would say sexual harassment and Title VII in particular, that's primarily all I do is harassment training, investigations around hostile work environment issues, writing those kinds of policies and handbooks. So, you know, that's where I landed and I absolutely love it. So, so both where you landed and again, kind of where you initially were starting your, your legal journey, did you come from a family that was, you know, socially active or how did this kind of, I mean, I, I never sat in junior high and said, Oh, Mary Beth Tinker is being, <laughs> being uh, denied her rights. How did, how did this happen? <laughs> I think people would describe me as headstrong from a very early age. My family are electrical contractors. So I grew up in the highway heavy road construction business. So I swear like a sailor or I swear like a construction worker. And I, you know, was out on construction sites a lot. I worked with men a great deal as a kid. Even today, most of my clients are, or a lot of my clients are in the construction industry. So, because I understand their kind of their business model because I grew up in it, but they would not say that they were socially active in any way. I think what really sparked that desire to want to make the world a better place was seeing things that showed the world wasn't a great place and going, well, that doesn't seem right. And that didn't seem right in 
the town I grew up in. It didn't seem right when I was living overseas in Jerusalem and Zambia. And so it just became much more something that was important to me. And because I have a 15 and a 12 year old boys, it was, I need to make sure that this isn't the way it is for when they're out here. And so I want that desire sparked very early in me by seeing things like that's just not the way it should be. So whether that's good for me or bad for me, I don't know, but it still feels like it's the right thing to be doing. So So in the first law job that you had, it was a plaintiff's attorney firm Mm -hmm. representing mostly sexual harassment type hostile work environment cases. And then you went into the foreign service Was there something that kind of pushed you in that direction? Well, I did college wrong, Jennifer. Oh, okay. (laughs) I started at the University of Minnesota. I had a ton of AP credits. So I started as a sophomore. By the end of my first quarter, I was a junior and I graduated in two years and a quarter. So I was done with a near double major in an honors program before I turned 21. And so that you're was a savant. A <laughs> that, well, I was not a savant. I just, every credit after 16 was free. So I took 20 and 22 credit loads and I went year round because if I could do that, then I could get out of school cheap because I knew I wanted to go to law school. And I knew that's where I was going to be spending a lot of money. And so I was trying to cost benefit analysis of how fast could I get to law school. And then I realized I should be able to drink a beer when I go to law school because <laughs> there's going to be a necessity to actually socializing in law school. That's going to be very beneficial. And so I took kind of a a pause and said, oh, I should go get this master's degree in K-12 public education before going to law school. Because if I'm going to be, you know, prosecuting school districts, I should have the same education that the people I want to go out there and say, you're doing this wrong has, because then I could say that I know a little bit more about their business. So that's what I did. And in those Four and a half years then, I never studied abroad, which I regretted not doing. And so when on a complete and utter whim, I sat on the couch one night and I had a new baby and I had a three-year-old and I thought, you know, let's just see what the State Department has on its website and let's just just see. And so I signed up for everything. I took the test. I passed the test. I went for the three-day weekend in DC and did the day-long interview and I passed that. And then they said, oh, you need to get a top secret clearance and see if you're worldwide medically available. And I'm like, oh, my dad really shouldn't be an FBI guy. That would be fun. (laughs) That'd be fun for him. So I, we kept doing that. And then all of a sudden it was here you go. Here's this opportunity. Are you going to take it or not? And I went, I don't think there's a reason to not take it. And I think it's going to be a regret if I don't. So I packed up my then four-year-old and 18-month-old and we moved to Jerusalem and we lived there for two years. My marriage fell apart at that in Jerusalem. And then I moved with two kids to Africa. Luckily, I had the world's best live-in maid nanny cook. Oh my gosh, she was the best cook at, that lived with me so she could help me take care of the boys while I was in Africa. And then, you know, it became clear with my oldest that he was having trouble learning to read in school. And we came back to the States and did a bunch of educational evaluation and found that he really did have some things that needed help 
And so we came back and now he's reading at a college level. He is well advanced in math and super duper smart kid. He just needed some additional resources and that meant me being home. So I love how these thoughts just come to you. Like <laughs> I'm going to be a lawyer at 15. <laughs> I'm going, I'm going to get a second degree in K through 12 education. And then, I, oh, why not the foreign service? Why not? Service. Why not? <laughs> well, it, and you know, my life is kind of like that. You know, I practice in big management side firms. I practice in small firms. I've started my own business. My whole life has kind of been, you know, I don't set a goal for where I'm going to be in five years. I want to see how much adventure I can have in the next five years. I just set and discuss dates for when I'm going to Antarctica, hopefully next February. And that's kind of what my life has been. I have this passion of trying to make workplaces and the world better, but I need to have adventure too and fun. And so I try to seize on those opportunities as they come. So if someone were to come to you and say, Kate, or your, your life seems quite adventurous, what advice would you have for me? Whether that person is young or old, how do you, how do you talk to somebody about kind of adding more adventure to their life? I think you can find adventure everywhere. I think having kids is an adventure. I think going to a protest can sometimes be an adventure. I, I don't think you need to do great big grand gestures like the thing I did that I somewhat regret because my body hated me for a long time after. But Wait, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> so last summer, so I really don't like summer. It is my least favorite season because it's hot and it's humid and I, I, I don't tolerate either of those things well. And so last August, I spent eight days in Norway and eight days in Iceland. And Norway, I went by myself. I rented a car. I had the map. I just drove around Norway for eight days. And one of the stops I did was a great big hike called Trollhagen. It's 15 miles round trip and like a huge amount of elevation. But once you get to the top, there's this place where you can sit out and it looks like a troll's tongue, which is how it has that name. And you're over this big fjord and lake and it is beautiful. It is absolutely stunning. And a lot of people, when they do it, they go up and they camp somewhere on the trail on the way. I decided to do it all in one day. And my of body course you did. <laughs> <laughs> my body was not happy with how that went. And then the following day, I did a three mile hike that included a seven kilometer kayak to a glacier and then we hiked on the glacier. So my body was real angry with the kind of the whole trip because that kind of was the whole trip was kayaking and hiking every day. And so, but I look at that as that was something I needed to do to make sure that I am still on this path of I'm not going to be complacent. I'm not going to sit in my house and just do my work every day, even though I love it. I, I really do hope that I'm making a difference with my clients. But my goal was I need to make sure that I still have that fire. And Norway was that fire. I took my two boys with me to Iceland and we had a blast doing, you know, kind of the same kind of adventure stuff. So I, that's what I look at is how can I continue to have my adventure? And my definition of adventure doesn't need to be your definite adventure, but that kind of finding that fire in your belly is important. So do adventures for you mostly consist around travel or uh, journeys? Yeah. Yes. 
I, once you live in the foreign service, like every weekend, you're like, how can I go do something fun? Like, how can I get out and see the country that I'm living in? How can I get out and help the country that I'm living in? Like, for example, one of our favorite thing is the boys love to do this too. Ozzy doesn't remember it that much, but Quentin does, is there was an elephant orphanage about an hour away from Lusaka in Zambia. And so we would go there all the time. And while we couldn't necessarily feed the baby elephants, we could see them. And just by being there and paying the entrance fee, we helped, you know, keep the orphanage alive. And so we would go do that. Or then we would go to a real orphanage in Africa because of the AIDS crisis there. We would go and we would play with the kids for a couple of hours. And so that was stuff that we got to do nearly every weekend. Mm-hmm. And I think that has helped me figure out that there's no good reason to not be helping people when you have the time and the resources to do it. I thoroughly enjoy vegging in front of the couch and watching Netflix sometimes too. But if I have the time and the energy, that's where I would like to spend it. So before we move on to kind of the work that you're doing today, I know you have some cool stories about people that you met or interacted with in the foreign service. <laughs> what, what is the coolest story of someone oh. that everyone would know even if you can't oh. tell us their name, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so well, I will do two. I'll do one from each country. As you can imagine, Jerusalem is the center of the diplomatic world because of the Middle East conflict has been a subject of where we want to be forever. And Nobel Prize laureate and former U.S. Senator George Mitchell and I often rode the elevator together. Mm-hmm. And so that was like, I love George Mitchell. He created peace in Northern Ireland. Like I would walk on him like, oh my God, it's George Mitchell. And, and this <laughs> teeny tiny little elevator in a former convent is where our offices were. So that was really, it was very interesting. That the other piece of Jerusalem was to get into a consulate or into embassy, there's the Marine guards, there's a bunch of how getting into airport where there's the metal detectors and all that kind of stuff. And then there's another big door before you can get into where the space is. And I had gone to yoga outside of the consulate and I was coming back because I forgot something in my office. So I was trying to run back and, you know, I know all the Marines really well because they're great guys. And so I'm running in and they're like, yeah, yeah, she can go. It's all fine. And I open the door and I'm running in all sweaty from yoga. And I plant my face into Tony Blair's shirt. (laughs) <laughs> like literally run head on into Tony Blair. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, so sorry. <laughs> and he's like, crazy American, right? Like <laughs> for those that, that don't know, Tony Blair was the uh, something of England, right? Prime Minister, <laughs> Prime Minister of England, Prime Minister of England. Yep. So the everyone's favorite story of which I believe I get in trouble with my dad every time I tell this story, but it's I'll be sure and send him this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> probably won't listen, but it'll be fine. So w- after 9-11, George W. Bush spent a lot of money and created a program in Africa called the President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, or it's known as PEPFAR. And because he created this program, it was wildly successful in Africa. We have done amazing things to stem the tide of the AIDS epidemic there. In Zambia alone, Before the program, the average life expectancy was 37. And by the time I was serving there, probably about 10 to 15, 
maybe 10 years later, I want to say 10, the life expectancy had jumped to 43. That is success right there is we're extending the lives of, you know, not just like from 80 to 87, but we're like taking six years of prime life and allowing, helping people live longer. And so because he did that, he would often come to Africa because people love him there. And so one year he was coming to Zambia and it was over the 4th of July weekend. And I believe his birthday is the 6th of July. I know it's right around the 4th of July. And my dad's birthday is the 5th of July. And in my family, the 4th of July is the biggest holiday we celebrate because everybody comes up to the cabin. We're all on the boats. We're all together. It's, it's bigger than Christmas because we might not all be together for Christmas, but we're, we all are together for the 4th of July and my dad's birthday. But because George was coming, we, I couldn't get out of duty because, you know, the human resources officer plans all of his parties, right? Because we're the party planners. So uh, my job was to plan his party at the ambassador's residence in which I had done a bunch of those parties before. And so I, because I had that duty, I couldn't go home. So I was planning this party and I, my dad was upset because I wasn't coming home, but my dad has had a crush on Laura Bush for forever. Okay. Like I worked at a publishing company that had published a bunch of children's books. And one year our promotional t-shirt was the best thing I ever did was marry a librarian with a big picture of George on it. So, so it was pretty great. Like, so my dad has loved Laura Bush forever. So during the party, I walk up to Mrs. Bush and I say, Mrs. Bush, it is my dad's birthday. It's a big one for him. And so I'm, and he's had a crush on you forever. And I'm wondering if you can wish him a happy birthday. She's like, oh yes, I'd love to. That would be great. And so I call my dad and say, okay, this is your birthday present this year. And then I hand the phone over to Mrs. Bush. And I step back. So I don't hear the conversation or, or one side of the conversation, but I step back. And she talks for, for like 10 minutes, which 10 minutes on the phone is a long time, right? <laughs> so she hands back the phone. She's like, oh, thank you. That was, you know, that was a highlight of this trip. And I'm like, oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. You know, my dad thinks you're just the best. Well, and I walk away thinking nothing of it. Okay. A couple of days later, I'm in my one-on-one with my management officer. And he's like, so did you hear what your dad said to Mrs. Bush? No, and I went, no. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, remember, road construction industry, so could be anything, he said, could right? Be. Could be anything. And I said, no, what did he say? And my management officer then goes, well, she got on the phone and your dad said, if George ever does anything, you write this number down and I'll come get you, Laura. <laughs> So, so my dad, you know, offered support to Mrs. Bush, you know, and the Bishop family, we go big or go home and he went big. So yeah. Well, you got your shot. You got to take it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Just so you know, hey, Clive Owen, if I ever get this opportunity, I'm doing the same thing. Clive Owen. (laughs) (laughs) So... Oh, you know, some people live lives of calm and peace. That's not your life, is it? <laughs> speaking no, speaking of calm and peace, you came back to mm-hmm. the U.S. and now you practice individually, correct? You're mm-hmm. I'm all by practice. myself, yep. And in that practice, you, instead of focusing on K through 12 teachers, which you have this <laughs> extraneous degree for. <laughs> yes, I don't technically have the degree. I've all finished all the coursework, but I didn't sit for the actual oral. But yeah, I, I understand education funding better than anyone. 
Yeah. There you go. So, but you focus on what? Tell me what your focus is in your practice. So I kind of have three buckets that my practice is. One is training, whether it's manager training related to hostile work environment, like respectful workplace, FMLA ADE training, basic manager training kind of stuff. Another bucket is policy work. And so I help write handbooks. I help answer random questions. A lot of stuff right now is COVID related. Another big piece of that is, oh my God, Kate, can I fire this guy? Please tell me I can fire this guy, which I'm more than happy to answer those questions because I know when a client calls me for that kind of thing, they've wrestled with the decision for a bit and they're just asking if it's okay to do it at that point. And I'm totally happy to help them do that. And the last bucket is investigation. So a client will call me and say, we have an allegation of harassment or we have an allegation of bullying or we have, you know, this employee may be doing this kind of misconduct. Can you come in, help us figure out what's going on and make recommendations? And so I get to do those three things and they all kind of feed each other. They kind of, you know, an investigation will help me know what a better policy might look like. And a trainee might tell me, oh, they asked these questions. And so maybe we should be more clear about that. Or when they ask these questions, maybe that's the same thing happening in this organization, in this investigation. So they all kind of feed each other and it works pretty well. So So you've had, I mean, the world has kind of uh, answered your, your needs for clients over the last few years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, we had the, the, the Me Too movement came into, to play and, Mm -hmm. and that kind of really pressed a lot of people probably to uh, reach out to you maybe that either hadn't in the past or didn't know that they needed to. Mm-hmm. What did that time frame look like when that was kind of really what was uh, all in the news? Well, I think, I think the news influences a lot of what I do. I mean, because we spend so much of our lives at work, and I say at work because maybe we're working from home, but we spend so much time at our lives at work, the news really does affect what happens at work or what happens at work affects the news. So during Me Too, it was a lot of training. It was a lot of, we got to look at this policy, make sure it's okay. And while I should say, watching what legislatures were doing in response. So for example, California, New York, Illinois, all changed what their training practices were going to be amongst other states as well. And so looking at what they were doing to affect and change in workplaces. And then what my clients were trying to do of, we don't just want to be doing what the law requires. We want to be making sure that this is comfortable for everyone. And we want to make sure that people feel like they can be themselves at work and bring forward complaints. And so during me too, that was a lot of that work. And I'll tell you, you know, in June, for a lot of my clients, COVID didn't exist because we were much more interested in how do we amplify and how do we improve processes around racial equity. Uh, I live in Minneapolis, and so the murder of George Floyd affected my clients a lot more directly. And so we were all like, how do we make the right statement? What do we do? What's the next step look like? How do we modify any practices we have? So a lot of that kind of newsworthiness affected their change in their organizations. And I'm super proud to be part of their desire to make things better. So, so you had me too. And then of course, COVID came along mm-hmm. and then Black Lives Matter and, and racial injustice, et cetera. So with COVID, 
when I looked online, you were out there every day doing a webinar, <laughs> some sort yes. of free training, a Q&A. Uh, how did mm-hmm. that affect your business? Well, I, I look at doing those webinars as one, if I'm not out there helping you figure this out, I know that you're going to struggle by yourself because you might not have money to pay me because my ideal client has an employee size of less than 2000 or less than 3000 employees. And so those are cash strapped HR departments. Sometimes they're HR departments of one and they're underwater. And so to the extent that I can provide a service and say, this is how I understand the Families First Coronavirus Act right now, or this is how I understand the impact on FMLA because of COVID or however they want to frame it, the more I can put information out, while I might not be able to say this lead went to this business at this date, it's much more of a, I want to be the place where you can find a little comfort in information. So I'd rather do that than sit back and say, okay, well, somebody's going to call me now because that's just like posting and praying and recruiting, right? Like I'll post the job and maybe the bright candidate will come, but I know that I, if I'm sharing the right kind of information, Karma will come back and will find me business at some point in time. And and for certain clients, that's the case. Like I did a webinar and they're like, oh, she was so funny during a, something so serious. Well, why not have her come talk about <laughs> harassment or why not have her talk about reasonable accommodations? So yeah, I think that that helps, but it's not necessarily the reason I'm doing it. Well, it's always, you know, obviously the legal profession, again, not my gifting social justice while I'm for it. It's not, you know, been my, my, it's something that I'm like, I got to get involved. <laughs> I, I get involved where appropriate, but I guess I wonder, do you, so you, you think about adventures, you plan adventures, <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you, you work, you have children, you're a mom, you, you're active in your community and doing a lot of things. Do you actually enjoy sitting around it and and saying, I'm going to read the latest Family's First Coronavirus Act. (laughs) Who who does that? (laughs) Uh, There there are a couple of them out there who love reading that kind of stuff. I I used to call it a super secret WhatsApp group, but I have a group of employment lawyers that I rely upon, that they are my friends, that I reach out to saying, I don't understand this. And even sometimes when it's a really stupid question, they are patient with me to say, okay, that's a stupid (laughs) question, but here's the answer. So they're very, very kind to me and I adore them a great deal. And I think even though there's a couple of them I haven't actually met in real life, I could still say we're close friends. So it's lawyers helping lawyers lawyer. Is that what it is? Yeah. And I think (laughs) that's it. And I, but I think, you know, a lot of the legal profession gets a bad rap in that we are expensive and we're cold and we're, you know, we only are fighting for business. And I think this particular group and a lot of my other friends that we're not that way. We know that what's best for business is treating your people right too. And so we craft policies, we craft decisions, because when we are helping make a decision, we're crafting those decisions to do what's best for both the employee and the employer, and because we know that that outcome is what will reduce harm to the organization overall. And so it's really comforting to know that this kind of group of lawyers are out there doing you know similar work to what I'm doing, but knowing that we have the same kind of philosophy. So 
great. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of bad reputations for lawyers, um, you actually (laughs) co-host a podcast with a fellow legal professional called Hostile Work Environment. So tell me about that and what you guys cover or talk about there. So the Hostile Work Environment podcast is myself and Mark Oliphant in Portland, Oregon. And Mark started this podcast with his buddy, Dennis, uh, a couple of years ago. And they, it's absolutely hilarious because we take real life stories uh, about the crazy stuff that happens in the workplace, right? Because, you know, every HR lady could write a book at some point about how crazy the workplaces are, right? But we take real life cases and we kind of just dissect them and talk about the crazy legal issues that are in them. And Mark and Den just did this for a, a little over a year, I think. And I was lucky enough to be a guest a couple of times. And when Mark went out on his own again to start his firm back up again, he's like, well, we should do the podcast. And Dennis didn't have the time. So he called me and I'm like, this is great. I'm so excited because it was definitely a podcast I never missed. And so now we talk about the current kind of current events. We talked about the Bostock decision about Title VII, including gender identity and same-sex orientation. And we talk about Black Lives Matter movement and what how that's changing the work environment. We talk about, you know, some old cases and just some crazy listener stories that we get. There is just awesome. I, I love it. I think our listeners enjoy it a great deal. We seem to be doing okay. So super fun. We'll be sure to share a link in the show notes for those of you that want to find the Hostile Work Environment podcast and take a listen <laughs> if you haven't already. What's the craziest case or, or situation that the two of you discussed on your podcast? Well, one of my favorite episodes is based upon Mark's distaste for fart and poop jokes. And so (laughs) I did a whole episode about crazy stories from Reddit about this woman who only ate fresh vegetables and then started farting in the middle of the day and it like was really rank and how was an HR professional would you go talk to her about you know maybe she needs some gas x you know like well what kind of how would you approach that Uh, and then uh, this very now a, a case that's really relevant because at the time the decision was that working from home was not necessarily a reasonable accommodation but now that we're all working from home you know this looks like it could oh, always wow. be a reasonable accommodation now, but she suffered from IBS and she would tell these stories about how, you know, she would soil herself in the middle of the day because of stress. And so it's like, we did a whole episode about that. And, and mostly because it was just deep trolling of Mark is why I enjoyed it. <laughs> but Well, you're also bringing we, back my like HR nightmare. I always, <laughs> the one thing, I mean, I handled a lot of things, as you said, every HR professional could write a book, but the one thing that I just could not do was when someone would come to me about another person's body odor. Yep. And I was successful in every job that I had. There was always somebody on my team who was either willing to do it or actually I had one person who was like, oh, pick me, pick me. I love these kind of discussions. And I was like, you can have all of the discussions. (laughs) And it's funny, you know, now we have social media and the places where people can comment on things without any context. And I think I shared that, you know, in in an interview or something and somebody like, kind of really took me to task for being a poor leader. And I'm like, you know, I guess you're right. You're right. I was a poor leader. 
because I really just, when somebody come and say, you know, I sit next to her and she smells bad, you need to go talk to her. And I'm always like, what, why, why do I need to? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My, my favorite was I had one employee who had a very high level position at the embassy in Zambia, but he didn't wear deodorant. And that meant that there was a barrier to him working well with Americans because Americans really no. Right, like they can't, they can't smell it. They're plugging the nose. They're kind of trying to avoid him, only emailing him. And so they elected me, which I was like, this is this is a manager problem, but I'm happy to go have that conversation. And so I brought some toiletries with me. I showed him where the, and we weirdly had a shower at the embassy. So I was like, you can use this. You can have this. You know, I I want to be very, you know, give you dignity and make sure that you understand, but this is being a barrier to you working effectively with your colleagues. And I want you to be effective because I think you have a bright future. And so it was that kind of a discussion, but yeah, I think if, if you me, haven't had one in HR, but I don't think that makes you a bad leader. Here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I understood the point. They're like, you were the leader and you, you got your team to do it because you were uncomfortable. And I was like, Aren't there some perks to being a leader? Okay. Yeah, there are some perks. And I will say, you showed vulnerability in not knowing that how to do that. And that is a sign of strength as a leader, right? I mean, if Brene Brown taught us anything, that that is recognizing your weakness and shining the light on someone who is willing to do it. See, so. I would have paid you $1,000 an hour to be my attorney to tell me that. Happy to help you. Whatever. <laughs> Well, I want to make sure that, uh, you know, people know where they can find you because if they want more funny lawyer sexual harassment (laughs) training or just some advice, where can they find Kate Bischoff? Well, you can find me at my firm's website, which is thrivelawconsulting.com or I'm on LinkedIn or Twitter. I love Twitter. So can't avoid me there. All the usual places. And again, we'll link to those in the show notes, but I can't let you go because you just kind of dropped a little adventure on me in the beginning where you mentioned Antarctica and you're planning to (laughs) go there. So right now Americans can't travel anywhere because depending on when you're listening to this, we're at the height of our coronavirus pandemic adventure, I guess, or let's hope it's the height. Uh, And Americans aren't allowed to go anywhere pretty much, but you're planning to go to Antarctica. Why and what for? And what are you going to do there? Okay. So my two favorite photographers of wildlife outdoor photographers are Paul Nicklin and Christine Mittemeyer. And they have shown some beautiful images of Antarctica. And ever since I was a kid, I've always wanted to go. And if you go... In January, the average temperature is 50 degrees, so it's warm, ideal in my Warm to a Minnesota girl. <laughs> yeah, warm to a Minnesota girl. I would like to go at the end of February, early March, because then you get to see the sun set and rise again a bit, so that light changes. And I know this because I follow Paul Nicklin, <laughs> Christine Minnebeyer, but I've always, I love the beauty of the rugged outdoors. And because this has always been on my list, I'm very excited. My girlfriend who's going with me really wants to see penguins. And I've watched enough Antarctica documentaries to know that I don't want to see the penguins because penguins smell really, really bad. (laughs) So that's not something I want to see. But my ideal activity on this trip will be paddle boarding amongst icebergs. And so that's what I would like to do. 
So how long does it take to actually get to Antarctica? I assume you have to go to several places to get there. Yes. The minimum trip is eight days with between three and four on the peninsula. Uh, and that's flying across the Drake Passage. If you take the boat, it's 13 to 14 days. It depends on which adventure company you use, but a girlfriend of mine from high school, her husband is in a company and will likely use theirs. But my hope is to do the eight to 10 day trip where we get four to six days on the peninsula and then do a lot of, a little bit dangerous flying. But I, I don't know if I can do a crossing of that passage in a boat without losing all of my body weight through my mouth. So, <laughs> so is there like a best Western on Antarctica? Or <laughs> uh, do you no. glamp? Do you get to glamp while you're there? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I think we stay on the boat for most of it. And I, I'm comfortable sleeping on a boat. I, I, and I don't want to leave a footprint more than necessary on the actual continent because I would like to preserve it so that someday my kids can go who are there incredibly angry that I am going on this trip without them. But yeah, I really would like to save the world a little bit, but also share how beautiful it is and see it for myself. Well, I can't wait. And I am really hoping that you get to go on the adventure and that we all get to go on adventures, both within our own country and around the world again soon. (laughs) Yes. Yes. There's a, there's a picture of this guy on top, laying on top of a British Airways airplane going, this is how bad I need a vacation. And I'm like, dude, so me, so me. This This is how bad it is. Well, thanks for, you've brightened up my day already today. I always enjoy talking with you and following your adventures. And again, we'll link to all the places where you can find Kate in the show notes. Thanks for time today to chat with you, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. It's time for you to get noticed, create change and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review.